0: Okay, so we're in Acts 27. Of course, we're nearing the end of the book of Acts, just 28 chapters. We are embarking on the journey to Rome. Uh, We've seen Paul has uh, stood before certain Roman governors, namely Festus in Acts 23 and 24, the next following Roman governor, Felix, in Acts 25, uh, where he's he was in prison for two years in Caesarea, um, and then he also appeared before Agrippa, the Herodian king, in the in the last chapter, chapter twenty six, um, and he appear he'd made his appeal as a Roman citizen to see Caesar in Rome. So now starts that journey, um, and we can see. If obviously, we'd need a map to, to look at these chapters. So if you're listening online, um, there should be the slideshow available or just Google, Google a map. And you'll see they start in Caesarea, they go up the coast, and then they go across the Mediterranean and finally end up in Rome. So this is the journey, and it's quite, it's quite a journey. It features a shipwreck uh, that Paul uh, and, and all of the, the crew and the passengers uh, have, and it's quite, it's quite, quite a trip. Uh, In fact, not the first shipwreck that Paul has had, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's listing many of the troubles and trials and oppositions etc that he's had in his life he says in verse 23 to 26 he speaks of being exposed to death again and again five times i received from the jews the 40 lashes minus one three times i was beaten with rods once i was pelted with stones three times i was shipwrecked and i spent a night and a day in the open sea and then a few verse or so later in his many dangers, one of them again in danger at sea. So Paul wasn't a stranger to what's going to happen in this chapter, but still no fun to go through it. And this wasn't just a couple of days, this was um, uh, weeks and weeks on end, and particularly the last couple of weeks in the most incredible hurricane and storm that we'll get, get to. So This is a historical narrative, so we should be able to move through it uh, fairly quickly. It's a nautical narrative, and it's geographical, so all of that is kind of woven into it. And we'll jump to the first uh, verse of chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So the time has come. Now they're en route to Italy. Paul's goal to end up in Rome is finally going to be realized. Um, and he's on a ship. Uh, he, we don't know exactly how long, uh, how many passengers were on this initial ship. We know when they change vessels later, we are told that there, are, there were 276 uh, people on board after the ship changes. Most of those probably uh, with uh, uh, prisoners along with Paul and soldiers and sailors. These are prisoners who would have been tried and sentenced, many of them executed perhaps in Rome, perhaps some of them ending up in the Colosseum. And in with this group is our beloved Apostle Paul, quite something. And he's under the charge of a Roman officer, Julius, who would have been a commander of a hundred men. We don't know if they would have all been on board, perhaps a portion of them. There were certainly soldiers there with Julius overseeing these prisoners accordingly. And you can't help consider providence. In fact, all through the chapters in Acts and all through Bible history and all through our own history, we consider the hand of God's providence. That as believers, we don't consider things to be too accidental, but there's a There's something more at at work. And, for example, this man Julius, we can't help but think perhaps it's no accident that he happens to be on this ship with the Apostle Paul for his his worldview will certainly be challenged. And another thing to notice in these verses, uh, you'll notice the word we, and also in verse 2, we put to sail, we went to Italy. What does that tell us? Huh? More than one. But who is writing? Luke is the author. So all of a sudden, the last time we read the word we was back in chapter 21 when the imprisonment in Caesarea began. And now we hear Luke writing we again. So Luke has accompanied him. We imagine right from Caesarea, he was there all the way through the imprisonment. And now he's actually joining Paul on the journey to Rome. So Luke didn't always blow his own trumpet and say, yes, and then I arrived. It's very subtle. He just changes it to to we there. So you'll also notice at the end of chapter, uh, end of verse two, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica was with us also. We read of him back in Acts 19, verse 29. We're in Ephesus. That would have been the whole city filled with confusion They rushed into the theater, seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travel companions. Also in Colossians 2.10. And remember, Colossians was a prison epistle. So when Paul finally gets to Rome, one of the letters he writes is to the church in Colossae. And in that letter, he references Aristarchus again, and he calls him his fellow prisoner. So we can gather from this that Aristarchus and Luke were on the journey all the way to Rome and, and Aristarchus certainly um, was a prisoner with him uh, along the way as well. So entering a ship of Adrametium, however you might pronounce that correctly, probably not the way, but that's in the north of Asia Minor. So if you think of the, maybe we have a map coming up soon. Uh, yeah, so so this is the Mediterranean. And of course, going up here would be Asia Minor. And about here is is that place. So the ship was probably heading back to its original uh, destination there, Adramatium. We put to sea meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. So they would have probably set sail from Caesarea, where they'd been imprisoned. That was a, uh, the most logical port they would have set sail from. And then they would have been traveling um, up this shoreline and they would have gone to come to Sidon and we picked that up in uh, at the end of there in verse two uh, verse three the next day we landed at Sidon so it's about 70 miles north of Caesarea and it tells us, Julius, this is the commander, treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. We would ask, why? Why did he do that? Well, you could certainly say because Paul was a Roman citizen, he might have had some, some privileges that the other privileges other prisoners wouldn't have had. Um, also, it's possible that he was told by the Roman governor that, okay, this man's on his way to Rome, but we can't see that he did anything wrong. Uh, but perhaps we could also include in there the grace of God, that God was with Paul, that God gave Paul favor in the eyes of certain men, just like Joseph and in, when he was in prison, that he had favor in the eyes of the, the jailer, etc. So we can see this uh, element too. But for whatever reason, he allows Paul certain liberties. A soldier would have gone with him for sure. But when they... Touchdown in Sidon, he allows Paul to go to his friends and receive care. So Paul was a guy who knew people in all kinds of places, didn't he? Because of all his missionary journeys. So when he comes to Sidon, he had friends there. This would have been whatever Christian community was there. Um, And this church, and there's there's a beautiful irony in this, this church would have come from the persecution when the, when the Christians were forced to leave Jerusalem in Acts 8 and on. Um, this church would have been a result of that. Some of these believers being forced out of Jerusalem and they went to different places in Asia Minor and, and beyond... And that's how we can imagine the church of Sidon, what it began. It's not mentioned on any of Paul's missionary journeys. The irony of that is it's Saul of Tarsus who forced them out of Jerusalem to come to Sidon. And now, years later, he's the apostle Paul and he's visiting them as brethren. It's beautiful, wondrous work of God's God's providence. We could assume he would have taught there, he would have ministered to them because of the nature of the man, of course. But it says here uh, to receive care, to be refreshed. Perhaps at this point he's even, uh, some assume that maybe he's sick at this point. But he receives care from his friends, from the brothers and sisters at Sidon. Verse four, when we are put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So if we had a quick look at a map there, they go up the coast from Caesarea to Sidon and to hug the coastline and uh, be protected by the shelter of the island. They come up this way. They go along along the seas under Cilicia and uh, Pisidia. Again, these are, this is a region Paul was acquainted with. In, in fact, Tarsus where... Saul of Tarsus is originally from. This was his homeland. So he was very familiar with this part part of the world and this coastline. So we'll see there in verse, uh, verse four, we put to sea, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. So they came to this city, uh, right here going the wrong way, sorry and there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy and put us on board so from Alexandra in Egypt carrying grain up to Italy would have been um, a, a ship carrying grain for that purpose and the, the uh, commander finds one of these ships and here they change uh, vessels Again, probably because that other one was, was, was going to wrap around the coast up to the other part of Asia Minor. But this ship was going on to Rome, which is where they needed to go. And they were able to find a vessel that not only was carrying that grain, which was its main purpose, but had room for their group and the prisoners <coughs> as well. Verse 7. And when we'd sailed slowly many days, we arrived with difficulty off Nidus the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. So if we look at the map again, you'll see again they had to, they they would have cut straight across, but because of uh, needing shelter, they cut down south, came around this cape here, Salmone Cape, and then they wanted to uh, harbor there on the island of Crete. Some of you may have even been to that island and, you can have a beautiful holiday there, but you can also see, visit some of these places that are on in in the Book of Acts, uh, where they would have ended up. So in verse eight, passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lassia. So um, we know from the Book of Titus in chapter one, verse five, Paul writes to Titus, and he says. I purpose to leave you in Crete, appointing elders in every city. So at that point, which is later, it, probably he wrote Titus, it's, it's believed that there were two Roman imprisonments when Paul's imprisoned. He has one imprisonment, then he's released for a time, then he's imprisoned again and finally martyred under Nero. During that short release, it's believed that then he would have been the time he maybe went to, Tithe, uh, to Crete um, again and uh, was involved in church planting and then told Titus to stay there as the pastor. I'll just throw that in. Verse 9. Oh, so here's Crete. So they would have come around the Cape of uh, Salome there and they would have come to Fairhaven. And then um, they could have done a couple of things here. They could have just stayed there for the winter, although Fairhaven's, Its name being a bit misleading, was not the best place for winter to winter for the harbour to to stay for the winter, and most of them wanted to continue on to Phoenice or Phoenix, uh, further along the coast because it was a better place to stay for the winter. Um, Paul had another suggestion, and actually, what happens is uh, is well, we'll see what happens. Verse verse nine. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul had some advice for them. The fast here would have been related to the Feast uh, of the Day of Atonement. Uh, It tells us about when it was in the year. It would be heading into uh, September, even into October. It was beginning to be the more dangerous months to be traveling. Uh, Any further than that, they're really... It would be wiser to, to to just stay until the winter's over, be it a few months, and then and then travel on. Um, so, would they stay in Fairhaven or would they move along the coast to a better spot? Uh, Paul offers a warning in verse ten, and he says, "Men, I perceive this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our own lives." Now, it seems as though Paul contradicts himself, because later he tells them that um, we're going to lose the ship, but everyone's going to live. Whereas here he makes the indication that uh, if we leave, uh, we may lose the cargo and the ship and also our very lives. Uh, The answer for that is because in the second time he gives them advice, he get, he's, it's because he's got a direct word from the Lord. He tells them that an angel visited him in the night and specifically told him that all of, the, all of the, every passenger would, would be spared. But here we could put it more to the fact that Paul has a lot of experience. He knows the seasons. He knows the seas. He knows this area. And also as a man of God, walking very closely with God, perhaps there were certain impressions on his heart but he didn't necessarily know the specifics of it. Nevertheless, what he said was was worth taking heed to. Unfortunately, they didn't. So he says, this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only to the cargo, but also to our very lives. Nevertheless, verse 11, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. So they hear, Paul, okay, what do you say? You don't think we should go? You think it's dangerous? We're going to lose the ship? Boy, I don't know. What does the captain think? What does the owner of the ship, the helmsman, the, the, what do they, they think? So he gets their opinion, and he decides that, that, that what they say probably ha- holds more weight than this little Roman prisoner, this little Jewish Roman citizen prisoner. We'll, we'll, I'll go with the, with the captain. So um, And there's a wonderful principle that lies here, that, that perhaps there are, there's a good word or a warning in our life, but we tend not to hear it or take heed to it because we would rather go by experience or, or our own sight or our own natural reason. But sometimes God may be speaking and we, we have to develop an ear to, to, uh, to give him our attention and to pray things through sometimes. Not always, just to go with the most obvious or, oh, I've been this way before, I'll just do it that way again. But but what maybe God might lead us, have a word for us. But they don't hear the warning here, especially because in verse 12, it tells us, because the harbour was not suitable to winter in. So the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix a harbour of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest and winter there. So Paul gave his warning. They didn't listen. They said, let's go along the coast of Phoenix. And they set off. You'll notice in verse 13, you can almost hear the background music. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So the sun is shining, the birds are singing, the water's clear and blue and everything seems wonderful. They're probably looking over to Paul and say, look, the the breeze and the birds, what are you worried about? But you have to watch those warm south winds, don't you? Because before you know it, the next verse starts with the word, but, but not long afterwards, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon. Tempestuous northeast wind, um, a hurricane, effectively. Tempest blew in out of nowhere. Maybe we've had that experience in life. All of a sudden there's a beautiful warm breeze blowing in the next thing. <laughs> the next thing, there's a hurricane comes out of nowhere. Where did that come from? But Paul, <clears throat> uh, he certainly had a promise from God, remember? God had told him, as you bore witness to me in Jerusalem, you will also bear witness to me in June, in uh, in Rome. But anyway, the ship caught this hurricane. If we look at this map, this is where the wind cut across. They wanted to go uh, up here to Phoenix, but they didn't make it along the coastline. They got caught in the wind, and they effectively get pulled straight out into the middle of of the Mediterranean in this hurricane. that's verse 15 so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind we let her drive <clears throat> in other words they had no choice we can't we can't sail against this we can't we got no control over this we just have to go with it so that's what they did um sometimes there are situations where we don't have any control but um, it's good for the prayer life when that happens um in verse uh yeah, verse if you look here at the, bo- at the bottom of the map there it says driven under the island of Claudia. This is verse 16 and running under the shelter of an island called Claudia or Claudia uh, we secured the skiff with difficulty. The skiff being the lifeboat or the dinghy on the end which is how when you'd anchor the ship how you get into land. And they decided to get that in which they managed to do. <coughs> and verse 17 when they had taken it on board they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the syrtis sands they struck sail and so were driven so now they had to undergird the ship they had to reinforce the ship effectively to prevent it from falling to pieces these are incredible winds and storms and waves they're right in the middle of a hurricane and the the sailors themselves are starting to, to fear for the ship. So they wrap it with cables and ropes and straps for it not to break. They know that there are these sandbanks ahead um, and they took they took in the sail. They went with the wind. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed <laughs> like a cork, you know, being thrown around like anything. The next day, they lightened the ship. So this is the second day in this storm, and they decide they need to make the ship a bit lighter, particularly if there's sandbanks and rocks and stuff, you want the ship to travel a bit higher in the water. On the third day, verse 19, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now this is These are desperate measures. We're not just lightening the load. We're throwing all of the tackle over. We're probably not going to need that. They kept some of the wheat for food, but we'll see in the end, even the cargo of grain that they were supposed to be taking to Rome, in the end, they throw all that overboard as well. So now they're in the storm. They're in the middle of the sea. They've got no compass. They don't know where they're going. They're in the clouds, they can't see the stars, there's no sun, they're in the night, in this storm, completely lost. And verse 20 tells us, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, so this is not just one day, two day, three days now, it says many days, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. So as we follow this journey, a few days into the storm, into the sea, into the darkness, starting to throw things overboard, eventually the hope dwindles and in the end they say, we're going to perish. This is it. It's it's all over. And at this point of complete hopelessness, uh, when they lighten the cargo, the tackles overboard, God says, okay, Paul, it's time for you to stand up and speak again. So this is verse 21 after long abstinence from food and probably not only because food was scarce but they certainly had food on the boat but probably because they're being thrown around so much no one can keep it down so long absence of food then Paul stood in the midst of them and said men you should have listened to me or I told you so in other words you couldn't resist the little I told you so sometimes they, they have their place don't they? Okay, I know it's where we go from here is the issue, but also, boy, if you'd have listened, this wouldn't have happened. Maybe we could learn something from that from the future. So he gives them the, I told you so. And then he says, we should not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But then he comforts them in verse 22. And he says, and now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, only of the ship. So he says, probably looks over to the owner, the captain, sorry, the ship's gone. The ship is going to be lost and destroyed, but you will all survive the shipwreck that's ahead. And, uh, some might be thinking, well, how does he know that? Who is this guy? How does he know that? What, well, on what grounds does he say that? So he says in verse 23, for there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. What a wonderful title that is. My God, whom, whom I belong to and whom I serve. He says, the angel of the Lord gave me a message. Um, before maybe I had a sense, I had a perception this wasn't wise, but now I have a clear word from the Lord and I can tell you absolutely, we're going to be shipwrecked, the ship's going to be lost, the cargo's going to be lost, but we're not going to lose uh, any, any person. It might have seemed a bit of a crazy claim to them that this guy is claiming that an angel spoke to him in the night, but I think God is starting to get their attention So he tells them what the angel says specifically in verse 24. He says, do not be afraid. Uh, The angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So again, when the angel appeared, he once again reassured Paul that, hey, you're going to make it to Rome. Don't worry. You're going to appear before Caesar. But not only that, everyone on this ship will survive also. And there's an interesting question uh, uh, raised here, isn't there? Is, is only heaven will tell, perhaps. But I wonder how many times, because of being in the presence of a believer or someone who's prayerful or someone who God has a specific plan, um, people are a lot safer than they realize. That the people on this ship had a certain covering and protection because Paul was on this ship. I don't know if I, I've been on missions trips before and and maybe you're inclined to think, especially if you're flying, you know, Aeroflot or Air, what was it, Air Azerbaijan and Air India and these types of flights, you're thinking, oh boy, well, if he's on the flight, I'm okay because, you know, he, he's, he's, he's a man of God. It should be all right. But you never know. But remember what happened with Jonah. Jonah was on board and that wasn't the safest ship to be on. So you never know. But maybe there's a principle there. Verse 25. He says, "Therefore take to heart, take heart, men, for I believe God, it will be just as it was told me." That's a wonderful verse, isn't it? I believe you, you can take heart. you can rest in faith on my words, if you like, right on my faith. I believe that it will be just as God has told me. Paul was a man with quite a track record. He learned that God was true to his word, that God was so faithful. He could say to them, listen, oh, if I could sit down and tell you the stories. I have learned to trust him. And I know how true and faithful he is to his word. But then he adds one little more, one further statement. However, we must run aground on a certain island, so we'll all, we'll all live. I believe God, it's going to happen. We're going to lose the ship and we must run aground on a certain island. And of course, that happens. We'll read ahead in the chapter. It happens. He They do run aground on a certain island. And that island is the island of Malta. And if we look at a map, uh, we'll come to a map in a minute, but when we look at the map and you look at the Mediterranean, it's like a needle in a haystack. It's, it's, it has to be the incredible providence of God, the, the guidance of God, that brings that vessel being tossed to and fro in the middle of the Mediterranean, eventually to come uh, uh, run aground on an island, just as predicted and that island is Malta. So, um, Paul's faith rests, and they could see his calm heart contrasted to the, to the storms and the waves. There was something about this man, even when our life is being threatened, even when he's saying that we're going to be shipwrecked, that, that, yet there was a peace and a faith that he was resting in. It now had been two weeks since they left Fairhaven in Crete. Think about that for a moment. Not two days, two weeks. And not just two weeks plain sailing in the sunshine, two weeks in this storm, being tossed to and fro in the sea, and uh, and you can imagine the emotions and the fear and the the tears, the screaming, the whatever. You can imagine how the the atmosphere in 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 that changing with some of the people. But Paul was a steady um, a steady rock, as far as we can tell, during this time. So it says in verse twenty seven. Now when the 14th night had come and we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near to some land. Now that's a curious uh, a curious expression there and we can only assume it means that because in the night in the storm with no visibility somehow they could tell the difference between the waves and the crashing of the waves on the land perhaps as they came along this part of, uh, of Malta, before they get to this bay. Um, they could hear the waves crashing. The sailors, with all of their experience, could tell that land was was coming. And it says, uh, they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Uh, 15 fathoms. Now, a fathom is about 6 feet. It's from hand to hand. So 20 fathoms would have been about 120 feet. The next measure would have been about 90 feet. And it tells them we're coming into land because it's getting shallower. And I don't know if that's good news or bad news. It's good news on one hand well, land is there. It's bad news because we're in a storm. It's dark. We've got no bearings. We can hear the waves crashing on the rocks and... That guy's telling us the ship is going to be destroyed. So this isn't looking so good. And this is why the fa- the sailors are fearing. There's the uh, the sounding where they would put something down to determine the, the depth of the water. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And that expression just mean meaning they're just holding on for dear life. We're dropping these four anchors and we're just... Holding on, waiting for the day, and just hoping we make it through the night. Um, and it tells us, and they would have anchored the stern there because with the four anchors behind them, it would have enabled the front of the ship to be facing the, the, uh, uh, the beach, the, beach, the shore. And verse 30, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. Now that's not good news, is it? You know, when the sailors are looking to escape the ship, it's not looking good. When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, and the prow is the, is the sharp part of the, the bow that cuts through the water. Um, and Luke, the author, tells us, you know what, they were making a run for it. Uh, they were ready to escape, not the soldiers, but the sailors, and it seems as though the captain was in on the plan. And Paul, therefore, doesn't address the captain, but he addresses the centurion in verse 31 and the soldiers. And he says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, this is, this is room for a pause here. I couldn't help be poor. This stopped me in my tracks and got me thinking a lot about God's sovereignty and man's choice, because there's something so curious that kind of messes with us a little bit. We know the principle of man's of God's sovereignty; that God is sovereign, He can do anything He pleases, and you can't. You know, that's one of one of the things that makes God God. He is sovereign. And then on the other hand, the Bible also teaches that man has a will, a choice, a responsibility. It's not always so easy to see how these two blend together and here there is something quite curious about that because we know that God knew that all on this ship would be saved correct how does God know that well because God has foreknowledge that God sees the beginning from the end he can he can he's not constrained to time as we are he is eternal he knows all things past present and future You can't separate God's sovereignty from his foreknowledge. If that's who God is, when God says something will happen, it will happen either because he is going to cause it to happen because he is sovereign or because he knows it's going to happen because he has foreknowledge. He can make it happen. He can allow it to happen. But either way, he knows what will happen. And yet we also see man's choices are woven into this particular story and into, into life, we could say. Because we could ask the question, well, we know that Paul has predicted through the word of the Lord that every pass, every person on that ship, 276 of them, every one of them will live. But let's read again what he says. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. You see the, This, you see the challenge of reconciling that. God has said everyone will be saved, but here, clear, clearly Paul is saying, if they leave, you won't be saved. Meaning that it appears here that if these men had chosen to do this, it would affect what God had predicted would happen. It's kind of one of those circular, like, how do you connect the two? Can they leave? Did they have the free will to leave? We would conclude, yes, that's what makes free will, free will. Is it true that if they could have said to Paul, if we leave, we cannot be saved? He would have said, yes. But God said, we will be saved. And Paul would have said, yes. God knew or would live. But also, without his providential hand, they wouldn't live. But man's decision is nevertheless part of it. It's similar to prophecy. When God makes a prophecy, you could ask the question, well, did God predict that and then did God cause it to happen or did God predict that because he knew it would happen? And we could say, maybe both. Maybe one, maybe the other, sometimes maybe both. But either way, God predicts it. It's a prophecy because God knows it will happen whether he causes it or allows it, is another question. This brings us to the question of election. There is the doctrinal camp, if you like, in Christianity, where where, and it's a biblical teaching, again, according to the sovereignty of God, that God has chosen some before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. And yet, clearly, there's another line of teaching and truth in the New Testament that, that whoever believes, that we must put our faith in Christ. So, did God choose, or did we choose, or is there some mystical harmony of the two? It's a fascinating, uh, fascinating thought, and I'm not going to pretend that I can solve that mystery for you tonight. <laughs> but, uh, but nevertheless, it's it's a fascinating thought. God calls some the elect. How can he do that? Because he knows, he foreknows. Did he choose them? Did he know that they would choose him? So we can see all of those truths, both of those truths woven into salvation. But certainly we conclude this, that salvation is a work of God that man cannot accomplish on his own. But also, mystically, we know that man's, man is responsible. Anyway, thank you for allowing me that pause and diversion, but it, it, did, it did provoke my, my thinking about that um, because we see those two principles there. So the commander and the soldiers hear Paul. They say, wait a minute, the sailors are trying to escape And you're saying, if they escape, we can't live. So we're going to put an end to this. So in verse 32, the soldiers swiftly run over there, cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. That probably wasn't the wisest wisest way to deal with it. We just let the lifeboat go. Might have been handy a little bit later, but anyway, that's what they did. It seems as though both the sailors and the soldiers were failing rapidly in these moments. But anyway... So they're all still on the boat. It's dark. It's a storm. They've got four anchors holding them. They're facing the shore. Um, the the sailors trying to escape. The soldiers are stopping them from doing that. And then the day was about to dawn, verse 33. I'm sure that was a nice moment. Oh, we're going to get through the night. The, the sun's going to come up soon. And Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. So again, you're going to survive, but this is going to be key to it. You need nourishment. You're going to need strength. In a minute, you're going to be trying to swim inland you're going to need all the strength you can get and he tells them it's time to eat some food in fact he doesn't wait around he says when he had said these things he took bread gave thanks to god in the presence of them all and when he broken it he began to eat in other words i'm not waiting for you guys i suggest you eat lord thank you for this food and he he does eat and he prays i love that that he prays in the presence of them all because this little Jewish prisoner had certainly got this this the attention of the people on this board, not, not, not the least the the commander and the soldiers and the the sailors. you can imagine that he was the subject of a lot of their conversations. How could he predict that? Have you noticed something about that man? Oh yeah, he was telling me about his faith the other day and and you see the peace and the calm about this man. He was certainly beginning to get their attention. And of course, that was what God was doing in this chapter. He was bringing these these selected group of people on this ship to the place where where Paul would have their attention, where they would uh, have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. So, Another example of his present active faith in their presence was he thanked God for the food. That's left for our imagination, but I'm sure he also thanked God that they were alive and that God was with them. He perhaps even, oh Lord, thank you that you have promised that we will live. Who knows what he prayed. But it tells us, verse 36, that after that, they were all encouraged and all took food for themselves. Their spirits are raised. They all began to eat. And um, we could say in some measure, they were encouraged by Paul's words, by Paul's faith, by Paul's example. But nevertheless, it says they were encouraged by this. They began to eat. And here's the verse that tells us, and in all, we were 276 people on the ship. And if that verse wasn't there, Uh, we wouldn't know. It would be one of those questions that you just have to speculate based on historical comparisons, etc. But Luke takes the moment there to tell us. Not 275, 276 people on the ship. And this one man, Paul, uh, through God's providence, had a witness to all of them. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea again the anchors are holding them they're, they don't know what's going to happen but probably they're going to cut the anchors to go into shore they want the ship to ride as high as it can with the rocks and the etc so they, they the rest of the wheat uh, they throw they throw overboard and when it was day they, they did not recognize the land they didn't know where they were They didn't know that it was St. Paul's Harbor, as it's called today in Malta, because of course it wasn't called that then. But anyway, they didn't have a map of Malta handy. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know how far they traveled, but they were uh, right on this little island of Malta. In verse uh, 40, you can see it right there, or actually right here. I believe maybe the shipwreck was here and they swam in here. If they know if that's exactly the place course it's hard to tell but nevertheless if you go there today on one of these shores you can see this big statue white marble statue of paul looking out like that but anyway that's supposedly the point and um they let go the anchors verse 40 there's a picture of it there oh there's the there's the statue right there and uh they let go of the anchors they left them in the sea Meanwhile losing the rudder ropes and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for the shore. Um, because they in verse uh the, the second part of verse 39, they observed a bay with a beach. So the sun comes up, they see the rocks, and they see a little bit of beach, and they think that's where we're heading for. So they cut the anchors and they they head in. But Verse 41, striking a place where two seas met. And this, the idea here is, of course, you have two different currents uh, meeting on, on some uh, part of that jutted uh, coastline, and it had caused a sandbank. So when they're heading towards the, that little coastal area, they, where these two seas meet, where these two currents were meeting and there's a sandbank, they plow right into the sandbank in verse 41. They ran the ship aground. And of course, this had been predicted. Any, any prudent student who'd been paying attention would have known, okay, there's the shore. Here's the ship, but we're not going to make it because he's already told us that we'll all live, but the ship must run aground on an island. Here's the island. This is you know and of course that's what happened. They get plough into the sandbank and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So now the ship is stuck head first, the sharp Part of the the um, the bow right into the sandbank, and the waves are still crashing behind, and it's starting to splinter the ship apart and destroy the ship. And it's time for them to get off. So the sailors had a plan to escape earlier on, and now it's time for the soldiers' plan. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. So, and of course we know this because in Roman law, a soldier would be liable. To take on the punishment of the prisoner that he had escaped, if he was if he was responsible for him, so they said, "Listen, let's let's kill the prisoners so they don't escape." And of course, this would have included Paul. Um, we know uh, that Satan would have loved to have been able to 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 prevent Paul from getting to Rome because that was obviously in God's plan and it had been predicted, verse forty three. But the centurion. Wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. So again, this centurion ends up being quite a key character, at a key moment. Who knows if it had been another centurion. It could have been a different ending. But this centurion who Paul had gained favor in this man's eyes, and we don't know all of the backstories they were on this ship together for a long time who knows what happened if who would become believers etc on the trip but nevertheless this centurion for the purpose of wanting to save paul said no and he makes he takes steps into his role of authority and says okay anyone who can swim jump overboard and have at it For the rest of us who can't swim, grab hold of any barrel or any piece of plank of wood and hold on to that and just paddle the way in. So that's what happens in verse 44. And the rest, some on boards, some on parts of the ship. Um, And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Or the King James Version says, and thus it came to pass that they all escape safely to land. So this is a wonderful phrase at the end of the chapter, starting at the beginning with the, you could see history so naturally, can't you? But you, when, we, when we look at it with the providential hand of God, the plan of God, the man of God, the work of faith, we know that even through the most t- terrible, seemingly terrible circumstances, God is working. And it ends with this phrase, and all of them, came to land, just as had been predicted. And this is where this chapter leaves them, poised for the next chapter. They are now on the island of Malta, where they will be for about three months. They will winter here. Um, And of course, Paul has that wonderful interaction with the locals, um, and has an incredible time of ministry there before before finally ending up in Rome, where it leaves us for that last part of his ministry in Rome. So Father, we thank you tonight for being able to walk through this chapter together and consider this incredible part of Paul's journey to Rome and just continuing also in the, in the next chapter in Malta. And uh, we thank you for these principles. We pray as we consider them and perhaps reread these verses that you would uh, prick our hearts with certain truths to speak to us and to help us, to guide us to encourage us and we thank you for these weeks that we've been able to go through this book and uh, we, we pray that you'd hide many principles and promises and truths in our hearts that we would have as um, available to us in, in our future walk with you we pray in Jesus name amen